If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans. We're going to be, we're going to be in a lot of places, but, but multiple times we'll be in Romans. And as Matt said, um, we are in our, our Christmas series, Christmas Together, just today, Christmas Eve, and then Christmas Day. Uh, but we're, we're talking about Christmas Together for uh, the next uh, seven days. And uh, the last several years, it just seems like there are so many things, so many forces, so many ways that are trying to rip people apart in our world. Uh, politically, certainly, there's, there's been a dividing for years and years and years, probably decades and decades, uh, into ideological camps. Um, I've seen friends in, uh, in the last several years that, I mean, some friends that were friends for like decades, that, that suddenly they're not even talking with each other. Um, my guess is we all probably know families that, that have split up in the last handful of years uh, over, you know, over arguments, over, over just really selfish behavior. Uh, I've read and I've heard that the last couple of years in our country, uh, sociologists think that it's, it's the loneliest point in our history as a, as a country for many, many people. Many people say they don't even have a, a single friend. And maybe, maybe that's not you. Maybe you're like, no, I do have some friends. But at the same time, you, you still, you feel that loneliness. And I know at times I feel that, right? You didn't aim to be that way, but you maybe you poured yourself into, I don't know, your passion. Or, um, or maybe you're in school and in your studies, you just, you just dove, dove into that. Or, or maybe it's your career or even your family, Right? You, you, just, you just want to be the best mom or the best dad or the best grandparent, and, and, and you're doing everything you can at whatever, it is, whatever your thing is. You're doing everything you can, and, and you didn't mean to, but, but there's just not margin for those deep relationships, those friendships. Or, or maybe that's not you. Maybe you have tons of friends. Right? You're, your calendar is so full. You're, you're telling people all the time, like, oh, I'd love to get together, but it's got to be a couple weeks down the road. But even though you're with people all the time, you only let people in so far, right? I bet we all do that to some degree. I know I do that. Sometimes my wife not so subtly tells me, Greg, you need some friends. I'm like, yeah, okay, you're right. Um, I know this month, the month of December, really actually even leading up to Thanksgiving, this can be one of the hardest times of the whole year for a lot of us. It can be a really isolating time. And even if you don't feel isolated, I'm, I'm sure every one of us in the room has someone that, man, we don't get to see anymore on Christmas. And we would just, we would love it. We'd love for one last hug, one last meal together, one, one, last, one last time just laughing at silly stuff. And for some, it hurts bad. It's so bad that you don't, you don't want to, you don't plan to, but in the month of December, you just kind of withdraw. One beautiful thing about the gospel is that God invites you to know him and, and for you to be fully known by him. God promises that he will never leave you no matter what, right? No matter how bad you mess things up, no matter how many times you blow it, God says he is with us. But it isn't just you and God, though that is, that is good. That would be good enough. But God actually made it so that when we join the family of, of, of Christ, that we join, uh, we join his, his body. Sorry, I said that backwards. When we join Christ, we join his family, right? The Bible uses all kinds of uh, family language to describe what it's like to be in the church. The Bible describes um, 
describes it often as, as adoption. And, and, and you know, we, uh, we adopted our youngest, Maddie, almost seven years ago. So she went from being uh, an orphan um, in her orphanage, and, and her orphanage had over 100 kids in it. And so it, in a sense, she was not physically alone, right? She was surrounded by, by 100 plus orphans. And yet, in a very real sense, she was alone. You know, she learned right away that crying didn't bring someone to her, not because those, those workers at the orphanage weren't great people. There were just too many kids. They couldn't all be picked up. And then by the grace of God, at 14 months old, we got to adopt her. So she legally became a goose tree, and, and, and she had a mom and a dad instantly. She had two big brothers and a big sister. She had four grandparents she had five cousins, she had three uncles and two aunts. In an instant, she was a part of a family. And, and when you trust Jesus, you join his family, right? There's a togetherness that God has made us for. Now, obviously, you have to choose to engage, right? You know, you can come to church each and every week and, and not be in the church, not be engaged in the life of the church. And we have to choose to let people know us. Right? And, and I, man, I get the temptation to, to not really let people fully know you, right? To, to kind of keep people at, at, at an arm's length, right? To not really go much below the surface level. God doesn't force us into deep relationships, but he invites us in, right? He gives us access. God's way is together. And, and for the next three sermons, we're going to talk about that. So let's, let's begin at the beginning, Genesis 1-1. You can turn there if you want. You, you don't have to, but we'll be in Genesis, uh, really Genesis 3, and then we're going to spend a lot of time in, in Romans. But Genesis 1-1, God created, and I'm not going to spend much time talking about this. There are volumes of books written on God creating, but God created everything, right? He spoke, and, 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 and things that did not exist became. They, they existed because God said, let there be light, right? God, 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 God made land. God made creatures. He did all of this. No one else can do that, right? We can't speak things into reality. Only God can do that. And as he creates in the Genesis account over and over again, it says, it was good. It was good. What he made was good. And then he gets to making Adam, and, and it, it's good. But man, it, it isn't good that he's alone. So he creates Eve, and Scripture tells us it's very good. Right, so we have this picture already of this togetherness. But it isn't just that Adam and Eve have one another. Right? Humanity is, is, is good with God in the garden. Right, God gave them everything that they needed, including himself. So humanity begins together in the garden in God's good provision. Right? And, and we try to imagine what that was like. And I, we can't fully wrap our minds around it because we, all we know is an existence with, with sin. But you know the story of Adam and Eve together in the garden. We come to chapter 3, and quickly the wheels come off. It starts with this crafty serpent, right? And the serpent casts these seeds of, of doubt. I don't know if any of you are fans of the show Survivor. I've been watching it for years. I'm sure I've missed a couple seasons, but I'm kind of obsessed. Um, and, and you get, if you don't know the show, they're on this island, they're competing for a million dollars, and they, 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 they 
compete and then vote each other off, right? And the last person gets the million dollars. So it, it, to make it through the show, um, you, you have to have allies, right? You have to have people that you trust that are helping you in these votes get out the people that, that you want out in your little alliance. But eventually it gets to the point, right? Where maybe it's like six, seven people, and, and you're looking at your ally, go, man, we've made all the same moves. Like, how in the world am I going to win this if you're still here? And, and they're thinking, i got to slit your throat before you slit mine. And, and I mean, not literally, obviously, um, if you haven't watched the show. <laughs> um, so, so at that point, the desperate people start trying to cast these seeds of doubt. Right? They come to one guy and they're like, hey, I heard Sarah say she was going to vote you out. And, and, and you're so paranoid. This guy's so paranoid. He's like, well, but man, Sarah, not. yeah, she would do that. Right? And, and, and everyone's playing this game of trying to drive wedges. Man, this is what the serpent did. He, he cast doubt in Adam and Eve and what they knew about God and if, if what he said was true. So Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that Really? Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And nothing's really changed throughout history. This is what every person struggles with to varying degrees. Can I really trust God? Is what he said true? Are his ways actually good? Can I believe what his word says? Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So sin entered the world, and it changed everything. And sin is this obviously biblical word that, that if you go to church, if you read your Bible, you're familiar with it. It's a word that at one point, um, for a long, long time in America, I think most people, even if they didn't go to church, they had an understanding of what sin is. But that, that is not the case anymore. I don't think it has been for many, many years. Uh, the Bible Project, they made a video uh, talking about this word sin and how it is used in the Bible. So we're going to watch just a, a section of uh, this video. It's from their, their series uh, called Bad Words. Sin translates the Hebrew word chata and the Greek word hamartia. The most basic meaning of sin isn't religious at all. Chata simply means to fail or miss the goal. Like when the Israelite tribe of Benjamin trained a small army of slingshot experts, they could sling a stone at a hare and not chata, that is, fail or miss. Or there's a biblical proverb that warns against making hasty decisions because you're likely to chata your way, miss your destination. So in the Bible, sin is a failure to fulfill a goal. But what's the goal? Well, on page one of the Bible, we learn that every human is an image of God. 
a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And so in this way of seeing the world, sin is a failure to love God and others by not treating them with the honor they deserve. You can see this idea in the famous code of conduct given to the Israelites, the Ten Commandments. Half of them identify ways you can fail at loving God, and the other half name ways you can fail at loving people. And the fact that both kinds of failure are combined shows that failing to honor God is deeply connected to failing to honor people. This is why in the Bible, sin against people is sin against God. Like when Joseph refuses to sleep with the wife of Potiphar, he says, how could I sin against God? In Joseph's mind, failing to honor a human made in God's image is a failure to love God. And so, sin is a failure to be truly human. But there's more. A fascinating thing about sin in the Bible is that most of the time that people are failing, they either don't know it, or even worse, they think they're succeeding. Like when Pharaoh wants to build Egypt's economy and protect national security, in his mind, this justifies enslaving the Israelites. He thinks it's good, and he's totally unaware that it's an epic fail. Or when King Saul is chasing David around the wilderness trying to kill him, he thought he was bringing a criminal to justice until he realizes he's the corrupt one. And he says, I have sinned. I am the failure. So sin is about more than just doing bad things. It describes how we easily deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. So why are humans such bad judges between moral failure and success? Well, the first appearance of the word sin in the Bible offers an insight. There are these two brothers, Cain and Abel. Their parents had just given in to this beastly temptation to redefine good and evil by their own wisdom, and now Cain is faced with a similar choice. He's jealous and angry that God has favored his brother, and so God warns him, if you don't choose what is good, Chata is crouching at the door, it wants you. But you can rule over it. So in these stories, Sin, or moral failure, is depicted as this wild, hungry animal that wants to consume humans. And we know how that story ends. The Bible is trying to tell us that failed human behavior, our tendency towards self-deception, it runs deep. It's rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compel us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. And it leads to this chain reaction of relational breakdown. This is why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul describes hamartia as a power or a force that rules humans. In his words, we are slaves to sin. He even says sin lives in us so that the things I don't want to do, that's what I do. So with the word sin, the biblical authors are offering a robust description of the human condition. It's a failure to be humans who fully love God and others. It's our inability to judge whether we're succeeding or failing. And it's that deep selfish impulse that drives much of our behavior. This is not a pretty picture of ourselves, but if we're honest, it's realistic. This is why in the Bible, the story of Jesus is such good news. He's depicted as the creator become a truly human one who did not fail to love God and others. Sin wants you. Sin is pervasive. Sin drives more of our day-to-day moment by moment behavior than we probably recognize. Right? Sin helps us, like he, he quoted from uh, Paul there in Romans 7, helps us do what we do not want to do. Sin drives us to shame. It fills us with guilt and regret. Uh, and, and I should say this, like I cut it off there on the video before it gets to Jesus, right? We're, uh, 
this sermon were, well, most sermons, you, you talk about what's bad, and, and then you get to the good news, right? You, you get to the, the, the hope of the gospel, but we're not doing that today. Uh, we're, we're, we're just going to talk about sin today. Um, I want us to feel the weight of, of sin. Uh, once the sermon's done, the band's going to sing about hope. We're, we're taking communion. Obviously, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about hope as well. Um, but but we're gonna we're just gonna sit here and, and look at what Scripture says about sin and, and, and the picture it paints for us so that we can understand how badly we need Christ. So there are gonna be verses I'm literally just gonna fly right over the hope like I'm gonna it, almost ignore it. Um, but we'll get there. We'll get there in the promises on Christmas Eve. We'll get to the hope we have on Christmas morning. But but I don't I just don't want us to to skip over sin. So Adam and Eve, right? They they chose to sin and it just spreads like a cancer. They they sow these fig leaves to cover up. They they start blaming each other, pointing fingers as soon as God asks them questions about what they did. One of their sons, like it said in the video, he kills the other son. You just read Genesis and sin, it's just spreading, right? It's permeating everything in creation, absolutely everything. By Genesis 6, it's so bad that God sends the flood, right? And you see, when you read that account, man, you see God's heart. You see how sad he is, right? Like looking at what he made, it was good. And look, look at what humanity has chosen. God is good, and he longs for people to see and enjoy his goodness. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, right, through Adam, uh, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So I want to I take you to uh, part of the Old Testament. I think, this is the, I think this is the second best picture of our depravity. Um, it's, it's an account that when you read it, um, it, it impacts you emotionally, um, as so often as Scripture does. And, and, and this will impact emotionally in ways that we do not like, but, but man, don't, don't reject it, right? Like God put it here on purpose. And, and sometimes, and man, I don't, I don't know everybody in the room, right? Some of you have been coming to church for years. Some of you, maybe someone dragged you here. I don't know. And, and you might hear the stuff we talk about today with sin and, and just want to say, no, that's not true. Man, fools reject scripture, right? Listen to what God's word says and, and weigh it. So we're going to Judges 19. And, and this story, it's, it's, it is, it's horrible. It, it is grotesque. If it were a movie and I got to this scene, I would shut it off, right? I wouldn't just skip over it. I'd be done with the movie. If this were in some other book, I'd close the book and see if I could get my money back. I mean, God has put it here in his word for a reason. And like I said, it's, it's going to make you feel things. Um, so the story takes up the whole chapter. I'm going to tell you the beginning part of the story. There's this Levite. Um, okay, so it's a, a person from the tribe of Levi. Uh, this is the tribe that, that God allowed to work in the temple, right? Levites alone could become priests. This says he had a concubine, which... Um, could mean it was his wife, could mean that, that it was a, a sexual partner that was like a, a secondary, second-class kind of wife. Um, uh, she's unfaithful to him, which part of me is like, well, stop calling her a concubine, right? So she's unfaithful. She, she leaves 
to her father's house in Bethlehem. And then one day it says he decides he wants her. He wants her back. So he goes to get her. And it looks like maybe this story is taking a good turn. So he heads out of town with, uh, with a servant, with a couple donkeys. He goes to her dad's house. He gets to Bethlehem. Dad sees him, is excited to see him, greets him, invites him in. And he talks him into staying for, for multiple days. But eventually he's ready to go home with his concubine. And they left late in the day, so there's no way they're going to make it all the way home um, by nightfall. So they hit the road. They come to this city. We're told it's a, a Jebusite city, right? So not an Israelite city. This is, this is not among God's people. Well, his servant says, hey, it's late. Let's stay here. And, and the man says, no, we will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We're going to pass through. We're going to get to Gibeah. I say, nope, we're only staying where God's people are. We're not going to stay with these vile, sinful pagans. We're going to God's people. So they, they get on to Gibeah, where the Benjaminites live. They go to the town square, and they're, they're hoping that someone will take them in for the night, which would have been normal, that someone would have shown them hospitality. Sounds crazy to us. We're, we're getting on Airbnb or, or getting a hotel or something, but, but this is how it worked for them. And, and finally, there's this old man. that He's coming home from work. And he says, oh, you can't stay in the town square. Come stay with me. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read here, starting verse 22. And again, you're supposed to feel the disgust, the anger, the sadness that, that you're about to feel here. So verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here my virgin daughter. Here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do to them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen. So the man seized his concubine, made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. Her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house, he went out to go on his way, and behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's get going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey. The man rose up and went to his home. And we entered his house, and this is disgusting. When he entered his house, he took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, he divided her up limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people came up out of the land of Egypt till this day. Consider it, take counsel, speak. Horrible. They're like, horrible. This story should stop us in our tracks. And, and yeah, right, I, I get it. Nobody in this room, nobody watching us online has ever done anything like this. You don't know anyone who's done anything like this, but you do know what it's like to realize you've done something you never thought you were capable of. Man, sin takes us further than we ever thought we could go. 
And when, when you do a Bible read-through, like maybe in January, you're going to start a Bible read-through. You do a Bible read-through, you get to Judges 19, and this story sounds familiar. Not, not just because you've done a read-through before and, and you've made it at least to Judges 19 before, but, but it's, it's similar to another story that, that came before it. Genesis 19. These angels are sent to the city of Sodom. And Lot finds them, uh, similar to this story, finds them, invites them to stay at his house. And, and then that night, the men of the town, it says all of them, they come and they're pounding on the door because they want to have their way with these visitors. And, and Lot does something similar. He, he gives his daughters to them, right? Or he's ready to give his daughters to them. It's just horrible, 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 right? He's ready to sacrifice his own daughters, but the angels intervene. They, they stop it so it doesn't happen. So we've got these, these two stories that are similar, but a key difference is one is in Sodom, right? The, the, the city that, that is not an Israelite city, not of God's people, so bad that, that God would, would later destroy the city, right? Just notorious for sin. Like we, we think of, when we think of sin city, we, we, call that, uh, we call Las Vegas sin city, right? It's bad, man, this is, I'd wager this is worse. So, so we see like how nasty sin is in the world among these, these godless people. In, in, in Genesis 19, you think, man, it can't get lower than that. But then we get to Judges 19, and now we see it isn't just the pagans, right? It isn't just the, the, the people that have nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with God, that, that, that are impacted by sin. No, sin's destroying God's very people. Humanity is together in the destruction, the, the destructive nature of sin. So I, I said that's, that's the second best picture, right? Because the cross obviously has to be the best. The cross is, is, is both a low point and a high point simultaneously in Scripture. And, and we're, we're probably so used to the cross that, that it doesn't impact us at times at least like it should. When we, when we look at the cross, we should be forced to look within ourselves and say, what is it, what is it that's in me that makes that necessary, right? Like, what, what can be so bad, so vile within me that I needed someone to die on that cross? Not just someone, but I needed Jesus I need God to come down in the flesh to die on the cross. The, the cross has to be the best picture of our depravity, which that's a, a word we don't use. Um, uh, just how messed up we are. You can put a more colorful word in there if you want. But, but we can't help but, but connect our, our, our sin to death when we see the cross. Jesus had to die to deal with my sin. If you were to go back to Genesis 5, it's this list of people. starts with Adam, right? It says, Adam, he, he was so old when he had kids and he had this number of kids. And then it says, and he died. And then it goes to Seth, right? And tells you about how many kids he had and how many years he lived. And then he died. And then it goes to the next one, how, how long he lived, how many kids he had. And then he died. Sin brought death. But it's not, it's not just like physical death ends and it's over and, and, and that's it. No, it's worse than that, right? It's, it, it's spiritual death. It's eternal death. It's just this separation between us and God, right? It's not like it was in the garden. Sin brings judgment and we deserve judgment. Everyone's accountable. Everyone will be accountable to God because of sin. Romans 3, and we're going to fly over this. Verse 9. It says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, right? So everyone are under sin. As it's written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Jump down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, right? All of us may be held accountable together, uh, sorry, may be held accountable to God for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And in Romans 3, 21 through 23, and actually I'm just gonna skip right to 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? Everyone has sinned. We can't make it right by our own power. Verse 20 says that the, the, the works of the law, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? Paraphrase, like you can't do good to take care of your sin. There's this idea or really this question like, man, can I, can I do enough good things, like just pile up all these, these good works and, and, and can I make that pile bigger than, than, than my pile of sin and, and struggles, right? And from a human perspective, that seems like that's a decent question. But from the Bible's per- perspective, the question is off from the get-go. It isn't, can I do enough good things? It's, man, can I even do just one on my own, can I do just one good thing? And, and, and could that, is it possible for that to have any impact on, on my sin? And verse 12 says, no one does good. You might do good compared to me, right? Compared to a neighbor, compared to somebody else. But, but man, our, our good isn't on the, 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 the God level of what is good. He is, he is holy. Man, our, our, our good is, is nothing, it doesn't come close to outweighing our sin. We can't do good. We can't do enough good. We can't even do one good thing that, that, that could hope to do something to our sin. Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work and sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Humanity is stuck in sin. We deserve judgment. We're described as being dead in our sin. Paul here says, he describes us as children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're like everybody else. You hear children of wrath, though, like, I feel a little dramatic, Paul. But before we reject that, are we humble enough to ask, does God see it better than I do? Even as a pastor, yes, I know, man, my sin is bad. I'm, I'm dead in sin. I deserve wrath. But there's a part of me still that goes, for a sinner, I'm I'm." I'm kind of okay. Like, I'm sort of, I'm decent. I'm better than a lot of people. Like, I, I have to fight that. And we've got to ask ourselves, who, who sees more clearly? You, the, the finite human, even with your decades of knowledge, or is it God? Look at how Paul describes in, in, in Romans 8 the plight of not just humanity, but, man, all of creation, how all of creation is impacted by sin. Verse 18, and again, we're going to just fly over this. 
For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, not only the creation, but we ourselves. And I'm going to skip the good parts there at the end. But, but I, I suspect that even if you've never heard this before, Right? You, you've, never, you've never read this out of Romans 8 before. You feel it. You feel this, this subjection to futility. You feel the bondage of corruption. You, you feel the brokenness of our world. You know the brokenness of our world. You've, you've felt it when you've hurt somebody. Right? When you've just wronged someone, and, and it's so clear. It's not like they did a little bit wrong and you did most of the wrong. Like, no, you just you wronged them. And, and so saying, I'm sorry, it feels useless. It feels void, no matter how badly you mean it. Or, or maybe you're on the other side. right? Maybe you've, you, you're the one who has been hurt. And maybe you've been hurt so many times by so many people that were supposed to love you that now you've just found a way to numb yourself. You figured out how to bypass the pain, and with that, you feel almost nothing, no pain and really no joy either. Or we feel it when we see headlines of just horrific crimes that are still being committed in our world. Right? And, and we, we look at like how much progress we have made as people, as, as a society, right? The, the advances in medicine and in technology. And we're like every generation before us that thinks we are the most enlightened ones to come. But you know what? We look at crime and it's still horrible. It, it still exists, right? There's still just crazy evil going on in our world. And it seems like we should have figured out how to take care of that a long, long time ago with all the wisdom that we have, but it's still here. We need to realize that we can't control the brokenness with better programs, better policies, better schools. Man, you feel it when you hear about someone ending their own life. Uh, there's a, a guy this week in the news um, that he was on this show that I was also obsessed with. So you think you can dance. Um, this guy named Twitch. It came from humble beginnings, right? had almost nothing, super talented, really driven. Anyway, did really well on this show, and it, it led him to a, a career in the entertainment industry. And he was on shows, movies. He, he did great. Married a, a woman that was uh, also a dancer. They had two beautiful kids together. Like It looked like this guy arrived. But just this last week, he, he drove just, just a few minutes away from his $4 million home. He checked into a hotel. And he ended his life. Man, creation is groaning. We're all in this together. No one avoids the impact of sin. We, we cannot make it better. No one can save themselves. No one can escape the futility that we've been subjected to. Success doesn't fix it. Right? Getting, having a girlfriend or a boyfriend doesn't fix it. Getting married doesn't fix it. Ha having kids, no matter how cute they are, it doesn't fix it. Actually, it just makes you more aware of how sinful you are and how sinful they are in your house. It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't fix it. We can't fix it. Right? God has subjected us to this, but man, it, it's this warning. 
Right? It, it, it's, that, it's that warning light on your dashboard and saying, something's wrong. You got to pull over right now and, and figure this out because you're dead in sin. The wages of sin is death. And together, all of creation, man, longs to be freed from the bondage of sin, but we need someone to set us free. And sin wants to isolate us, right? There's, there's the, the isolation of thinking that, man, I'm the only one that, that struggles in this way, or, or, man, I should have figured this out by now. And, I, man, decades later, I'm still dealing with this sin issue, and, and it's one of the most well-crafted lies ever, right? Because every one of us is tempted to think that we're the only one, that we're all alone in these struggles. And all of us are together in this. All of us are together in the suffering, the misery, the evil of the world, but its purpose is to show us the, the, the terrible destructiveness of sin. It's this warning, right, that, that we can't get out of this ourselves. We need to be saved from it. Would you pray with me? Lord, God, I thank you that scripture is really, really clear about our sin. And, and God, we don't like to, to sit here and, and, and think about it. We, we, man, we're ready to sing. I'm ready to sing right now about you, Jesus, in the cross. I'm ready to come to the table. I'm ready to hold the body broken for me. I'm ready to eat that. I'm ready to drink the cup of your blood shed for me, Jesus. I thank you that we don't have to stay here in our sin, that through, through Christ, you have provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, for us to be reconciled with you. Jesus, we love you, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, we need to sing about hope, and we're going to do that. And this, here's where uh, these cards come in. I think there's a pin on your seat as well. But on your card, it's, uh, it, it's got Romans 8, 38 uh, through 39. Um, and in this song that, that we're going to sing, uh, in the bridge, it, it really is it, it's singing through this part of what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 38 and 39. So you'll see there, there's some blanks there, right? Nor blank, nor blank, nor blank. And, and those blanks are for you if you want to fill in during this time. Because maybe, maybe there's, there's this barrier that you've just felt for so long. Maybe it's this struggle, this sin issue. I don't, I don't know what it is. But, but today, I want, you, I want you to write that down. Right? I want you to write down, and, and maybe it's more than three things, or maybe it's only one thing, or, or maybe it's too scary for you to even write down. If that's the case, uh, I want you to make sure at least that you read the end, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? If you are in Christ, if you've trusted in him, there's nothing that, that can separate you from his love for you. 